I'd like to speak to you about uh, Christmas and why I'd like to do that. I've never really done this before, but I just felt God speak to me about um, Christmas time, and I'm going to try and do four, four, four little messages on, on the run-up to Christmas, and this is the first one. And um, I'd like to try and look from a different perspective at Christmas, and uh, I'm going to choose four different topics that we're going to look from the point of view of the angels, we're going to look at the point of view from the shepherds, point of view of a woman called Anna, and I'm not going to just do the, the normal thing at Christmas, which is looking at the manger and, and Jesus and Mary and Joseph, which many of us know the story very well by now. And uh, why I'd like to do that is I'm aware that there are many people that have mixed responses to Christmas, all right? On the one hand, for me, it's an incredible time of celebration, incredible time of uh, lights, trees, great food, gifts. Amazing times of celebration, various traditions, special worship times, great food, uh, family gatherings, and some more great food. So um, that's the part of Christmas that we all love. I, I hope we all love that part, but uh, I certainly do. And I, I just thought I'd start by saying a couple of things that some well-known people have said about Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. Margaret Thatcher, let's start with someone that um, some people love. She just, said, she just said this, Christmas is a day of meaning and tradition, a special day spent in the warm circle of family and friends. We can all agree with that. Calvin Coolidge said this, Christmas is not a time or season, but it's a state of mind. To cherish peace and goodwill, to be plenteous in mercy, and to have the real, is to have the real spirit of, of Christmas. And then a secular prophet called Bart Simpson, he said this, <laughs> he said, uh, Christmas is a time when people of all religions come together to worship Jesus. And he also said this, aren't we forgetting the true meaning of Christmas? You know, it's the birth of Santa. <laughs> Bob Hope, my idea of Christmas, whether old-fashioned or modern, is very simple. It's loving others. Come to think of it, why do we have to wait for Christmas to do that? Bob Hope, the famous comedian. Charles Dickens, who wrote Scrooge, and you know that... Um, Fantastic Christmas carol. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try and keep it all the year round. I love that. What about uh, Helen Keller? Anyone know Helen Keller? She was a deaf mute, amazing woman. And she said this, The only blind person at Christmas time is he who does not have Christmas in his heart. Very powerful. The only blind person at Christmas time is he who does not have Christmas in his heart. So on the one hand, there's all, these, all the good stuff of Christmas. On the other hand, I understand it's a time of materialism, rampant commercialism. And some people even choose to ignore Christmas altogether and don't celebrate it at all, saying that its roots are pagan. And so for that reason, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. I've even heard some Christians say that Santa is an anagram for Satan. This is how weird it gets. Santa is an anagram for Satan. Well, actually, it's not true. Uh, St. Nicholas was a real person, and actually he had an incredible gift of generosity, and he used to put money down people's chimneys. That's why we get the thing of Santa coming down the Christmas tree, back down the chimney. So there's all these weird things about Christmas. And I just want to ask you this morning, as I try and just talk a little bit about Christmas, that whatever your preference, whatever your, whatever, whether you love Christmas, whether you don't, I want to ask you just to try and park that on the side for a moment and to try and take a new perspective on Christmas together with us as we journey through the next three or four weeks. Um, I think one of the things 
that we can learn from each other is to walk humbly with each other and ready to take on board what other people, the perspective that other people have. I had the opportunity this week to go down to Surrey and have a couple of days meeting with different church leaders. And there was an amazing variety of church leaders, some young guys that have just planted churches, a couple of Americans, uh, one guy um, who's just planted in the middle of London, and some older guys from different, different um, flows that have been serving God in, in, in serving churches for, for many years. And there was great joy for me just to, just to sit with other people and to not necessarily agree on everything, but there was a sense of mutual respect and humility and walking together, that we're all in this for the kingdom. And I think there's incredible power that we can gain from each other as we consider each other's perspectives. And uh, I think, for me, Christmas is especially a powerful, powerful time because we have one opportunity like no other at any time of the year where people are a little bit more open to hearing the gospel. And I, I want to encourage you this time, this, this Christmas time, for me it's my 47th Christmas, and so, you know, as you get a bit on, you can get a bit jaded in terms of your perspective of Christmas. I think there can be a fresh look, a fresh perspective that can revolutionize how we see truth and how we see um, Christ. In otherwise, we might all grow stale, tired, and weary. And I want to encourage you this this, this Christmas that we all take a fresh look. And I'm going to try and do that with these four little cameos that are all found in Luke chapter two. And I think as we look through the different eyes of these people, I hope that we will get a fresh perspective of what Christmas means, fresh revelation uh, in the responses of these people. And so for me, it's, a, it's an amazing time because at the, at, at, simultaneously we can um, understand the joy of the manger and that points us ultimately to the cruelty of the cross. And we celebrate both at Christmas. We celebrate the coming of Christ, the incarnation of God here on earth. At the same time, that points us to the cruelty of the cross. There's the glory of the incarnation Emmanuel, Christ with us, God with us, Messiah come, living on earth in flesh. There's the glory of the incarnation, and at the same time there's the tragedy of sin, there's the tragedy of humanity that required a Savior to come. We, we remember these things at Christmas time. And then there's the miracle of the, of the baby in the manger, and uh, at the same time we think on and reflect on the miracle of the new birth, that Christ has set us all free by the power of the gospel, by the power of the grace of God in our lives. And so I want to look, the first thing I want to look at this morning is the angels and the worship of the angels. And what can we learn from the worship of the angels? And um, some of you might have Christmas trees this Christmas, <laughs> and you might choose to decorate your tree however you like. And uh, we've always had Christmas trees in our family. And... Um, Normally there's some kind of angel on the tree. Now the angels that you buy in the shops are normally rosy-faced female cherubs with sparkling gowns on them, like miniature little Barbie dolls that are all kind of cute and whatever. And the irony is that when the Scripture speaks of angels, they are masculine, they are powerful, and they are incredibly involved in humanity and in the plan of God and His salvation for the world. They play a significant role in the story of what happened at Bethlehem. And without the involvement of the angels, there would be a huge gaping hole in the story of Christmas. So I want to have a look from the perspective of the angels. That's the first window I'd like to look through into the events of Jesus' birth and what happened. So how do we understand angels? Who are angels? Well, the Bible calls the angels by three names. Cherubim, 
seraphim, and in Revelation it describes angels as living creatures. They are often described as men in shining garments. And we first hear of the, of the angels when we read the scripture that they were guarding Eden. It says the angels guarded Eden. Uh, they waged war. We know that. Angels waged war. They helped Peter get out of prison. Remember the story in Acts? says the angels came and, and opened the prison, helped him to get out of prison. Uh, they w- continually worship in the presence of God. And tragically, some angels chose to rebel against God. So that's the basic uh, biblical theology of, um, of angels. They have great names as well. Michael, which means who is like God. And that's my second name, by the way. <laughs> Gabriel. Gabriel, warrior of God. That's what Gabriel means. Lucifer actually means light bearer. And that was Satan's name. Satan actually means adversary, the, the enemy. That's all it means, Satan. And before, before um, Satan rebelled against God, he was known as Lucifer. He was the worship leader in heaven. That's what he did. He was the, the worship leader in heaven. And they're often seen as um, mysterious servants. They're kind of these uh, servants of God that bring messages and God sends them, and they're at the very center of God's dealings with men and women in the Bible. And uh, the word, Greek word for angel is angelos. Angelos, which means messenger, envoy, someone who's sent from God, a messenger from Him. And so we often see them in the Bible. That's what they do. They bring messages. And so they carry the message of warning to Sodom. You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels came to warn them and said, if you don't change, God's going to destroy the city. Uh, remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they bring a, a message of, of, um, uh, that God is going to deliverance. He's going to, he's going to bring deliverance and rescue for, for those guys in the fiery furnace. And uh, sometimes they bring a message of instruction like Hagar. Remember the story of Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden? Uh, the angel comes and tells exactly Hagar what to do. So they're very active. They, they, they're involved in God's plan, and that's not the only role, but it's a primary role that they have. But it's very interesting for me to notice this. The word for gospel, which is announcing the good news, preaching, what we do from the pulpit, we preach, the, we announce the good news, it's from the same root word. It's evangelios. It's the same word. Root word is angel. Same root word. So the gospel, the good news that we preach of Christ crucified, was first announced and brought to the world by the angels. They announced the gospel in advance. They announced that the gospel was about to be brought in the person of Jesus to the world. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing. So angels are a very powerful part of, of the biblical story. And how are they involved? Well, um, the highest-ranking angel that the Bible speaks of is Gabriel. He's, the, he's called the, he's the, the archangel. He's the highest-ranking rank, angel. And um, he comes to earth to inform the main players in the story and ultimately to inform the whole of the world that Messiah was come. And we know this from Galatians 4, because Galatians 4, 4 says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so... Gabriel comes to announce to the world that the fullness of time has come, that Christ is coming at the right, the fullness of time. And he has three announcements. And the first announcement is this. It concerns John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And so he's the forerunner of the Messiah. And um, we read in Luke 1, 5, Gabriel appears to an old guy called Zechariah. 
the first announcement that he makes, to an old guy called Zechariah, who's a childless priest. He's an old man. He's childless. And uh, Gabriel appears to him in the temple, and initially he's absolutely terrified. I want want you to understand, this is not like an everyday occurrence. I mean, sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we think that angels popped up everywhere. They didn't. It was an extraordinary event. If an angel appeared today in front of us, um, we, we probably too would be terrified. It's absolutely extraordinary. So initially, he's terrified. And then actually, as Gabriel tells him the story of what God has said to bring to him, he starts to laugh. He says, that can't be. My wife is old. It can't be. She's ancient, my wife, Elizabeth. She can't possibly bear a child. And so he laughs. And so Gabriel says to him, because you have taken this lightly in this way, you will be mute until the child is born. And that's exactly what happens. As the story unfolds, he can't speak until Jesus is born. And and we'll look at that just now. But he says to, 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 uh, Gabriel says to to, uh, Zechariah that this is to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi. Now, Malachi is the, one of the later prophets in the Old Testament, and he prophesied that a figure much like Elijah would come and would prepare the way for Messiah to come. That's what he prophesied. And so, that's exactly what the ministry of John the Baptizer is. He goes around, and what does he say? Continue, he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Messiah is coming. I am not he... He is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. Messiah is coming. I'm preparing the way for Messiah to come. And there's that incredible picture at the River Jordan when, when uh, John the Baptist comes down and, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus comes down and John the ba- baptizer is baptizing people and Jesus asks to be baptized. And at that moment, John realizes he's got to get out of the way. And what does he say? He says those incredible words, I must decrease so that he can increase. And he points people towards Jesus. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's the first announcement from Gabriel. The second announcement from Gabriel, this great uh, archangel, is six months after that, so six months after he's he's spoken to Zechariah, he appears in Nazareth again to this young woman called Mary. And again, you can look look in Luke chapter 1. And he says these incredible words to her. He says, Mary, you've been chosen by God to have the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah. This long-anticipated Savior that the Jewish race had been anticipating and longing for for many, many generations, thousands of years. And and her her response is incredible. It's it's kind of one of confusion. She's not knowing what's going on. She's submissive at the same time. And ultimately she says she's willing to do whatever God wants her to do. She's a virgin. She's engaged to a much older man. Joseph was much older than, than Mary. And um, Gabriel tells her that in no way will she violate any of, of, of her vows of purity that she's, in, uh, that she's taken as she's been engaged to Joseph. And that actually this would be a miraculous thing, that the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And when the ch- child was to be born, he was to be called Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Isn't that incredible? They're just in the name Jesus. Both the character of Jesus and who he was are described in one word. Jesus. The Lord is salvation. So his mission is that he was a redeemer, the redeemer, and um, the character, he was the son of God. And so her, her response is, is remarkable. It's absolutely incredible. And she simply says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so Gabriel then goes immediately to Joseph and he gives him the same message. 
It says, Joseph, don't worry. Mary's going to have this child, and this child is from God, not from man. She hasn't been unfaithful in any way, and you can be confident that she's still pure. And you can read that in Matthew one twenty. So that's the second announcement. First to Zachariah and Elizabeth. Secondly to Mary and Joseph. The third announcement that Gabriel brings is actually on the hillside to the shepherds. And presumably it is, it is Gabriel that appears again in the skies of Judea, uh, in, in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. And we read about that in Luke chapter 2. And here these um, shepherds are having their normal kind of nightly event. They're looking after these, um, these sheep. And it says... A brilliant light shines in the sky and is accompanied by a message of the angel. And again, these, these men and boys are absolutely terrified. Okay? It's a dramatic, dramatic message that is brought by the angel. Luke 2.10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And as we've been looking at um, James, I had a look last week about no discrimination in the church, and uh, that we're not to discriminate on the basis of anything in the church, that we have this amazing gift of grace that God has lavished on all of us, and who are we to discriminate against anybody else? And right here, I want, I want you to see this, the same point, because... The shepherds were the most least likely of people for this message to be delivered to. They weren't temple priests. They weren't managers in the temple. They had no, no, no um, standing in society. In fact, the men and boys that were priests, that were shepherds in, uh, in, in the society in those days were the lowest of the low. They were the poorest of the poor. And so God chooses to deliver this amazing announcement about the gospel to the poorest of the poor on the hillside outside Bethlehem. It's incredible power in that. So this first announcement of the evangelios, the gospel, comes. The first ones to hear that Messiah has come are the poorest of the poor looking after sheep on the hillside outside Bethlehem. It's incredible. And the, the, as you read the story, what happens is the, the angels deliver this message and they begin to worship. The angels begin to worship. And so I want to ask the question this morning, why do they begin to worship? I mean, primarily we've seen them in the story up to now. They're messengers. They're bringing messages on behalf of God to people. But that's not the only function. I, 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 I hinted at it already. The primary function of angels in both the Old and New Testament is to worship God. They are worshippers. That's what they were created to do, to worship Him. And we see in the Old Testament, Isaiah has a picture of the throne room of God. He has this vision, or either he has a vision or he's transported to heaven, and he witnesses these angelic, this angelic host worshipping in heaven. And he describes them, he says, they're six-winged seraphim, and they declared the goodness and the glory and the greatness of God. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, he says... They called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so he has this picture. He glimpses into heaven and he sees these huge uh, creatures, angelic creatures worshipping at the throne of heaven. And in the same way, when we read Revelation, the Apostle John, he has the same glimpse of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And he sees these living creatures 
and he, he says they declare the holiness of God and they call on everyone who is redeemed. Everyone who's redeemed. Everyone who's, who's, um, who's experienced the grace of God and salvation in their lives. The angels call to us to worship him. That's the picture in Revelation 4 and 5. And um, Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. Revelation 5.12, saying with a loud voice, the angels, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So in these two scriptures we see that uh, the angels celebrate creation, they celebrate Christ's salvation. And here at the Christmas story on the, on the, on the hillside at Bethlehem, they, ins- um, they assemble together like a mass choir. That's what happens. Gabriel brings the announcement and there's a mass choir of angels in, in the sky and they immediately begin to worship God about his incredible plan to save humanity. That's the first thing they do. They worship Him. They can't keep quiet. They say, God, we want to worship You for Your glory. We want to worship You for Your Son. We want to thank You that You've got a plan for confused, lost, broken, tired people. You've got a plan. And Your plan is about to invade the earth in the form of this baby. And they celebrate. They worship. They say, thank You, God. You're so good to Your people. And that first act of worship that we experience there, the first act of worship is the thread of worship that we still enjoy today. Every time we get together and we worship together, that is why we worship. Out of gratitude, out of thanks to God that He has a plan. He has a plan of redemption for all of humanity and we are part of that plan as soon as we come into Christ and our, our responsibility as believers is to tell every other person that the good news, Messiah, has come and you can be set free. So, their message is simple. Their song is simple. They sing in Luke 2.13. They simply, it says, The heavenly host praised God and said, Glory to God in the highest on earth be peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. Isn't that good news? There's the gospel for you in that little verse. God is pleased with you. God is smiling on you. God loves you. He's always loved you. God is pleased with you. He sees Christ upon your life when you come into relationship with him. And so what Isaiah and John had seen in terms of vision and prophetically, the shepherds see in reality, on the hillside, it's like there's a flash of glory. It's like heaven breaks in and they see into heaven. And here, right before them, are the angels worshiping God. Uh, it was a, it's this flash of glory. And they affirm that Christ has come to offer peace with God to us as humans who have been rebellious. And God's solution is reconciliation between Him and between Him and man. And there's a simple, simple word, shalom which speaks of the fullness of what that means. And that's a whole nother, other message for another day. But simply put, it just doesn't mean the absence of strife. It doesn't mean just the absence of conflict. It's incredible. Shalom is, describes the presence of Jesus in your life. The fullness of the presence of Jesus. And that's why Isaiah, when he prophesies about the Christ, he calls him the Prince of Peace. He understood the gospel in advance. He understood exactly what that meant. And it's interesting that uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, uh, to the, the, the church in Philippi, um, he says this, 
He says it's possible for us to have a real relationship with God who is peace through Jesus. And he, he puts it this way in Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He puts it together. And so the angels sing. Why do the angels sing? Because God was about to invade the planet and God's plan of redemption was about to be birthed in, into the world. And those things that the shepherds held in their heart all those, time, all those years ago, the same things that we hold in our heart every time we worship him. The same thing. And then secondly, I'd just like to say, um, how am I doing with my time? I've got to see if I'm doing it, eh? 24 minutes. You've got to be joking. I'm oh, sorry about that. Point number two. I've got three points. Point number two. The angels, con- they, they continued to serve Jesus through all of his ministry. They didn't just leave that morning or that evening when they'd finished, the, they'd finished singing. They con- continued to be involved with him for the next 30 years of his ministry. So I want to give you, uh, they were especially active when there was danger or something needed to be declared. So if we read in Matthew 2.13, an angel comes and warns Joseph and says, be careful, Herod's trying to kill the child. You, you need to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And so Joseph, Joseph obeys and obeys the angel and he, he takes Jesus away. Uh, you, you remember the, the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil in um, Matthew 4.11? It says, after the devil left him, what happens is the angels came and ministered to him. Uh, the angel ministered to Jesus during his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read in Luke 22.43, it says, they appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. At the resurrection, the angels appeared at the tomb um, on resurrection day, Matthew 28.2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Why? Because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone away. An angel rolled the stone away so that Jesus could rise from the dead. They announced his resurrection to other people. Matthew 28.5, John 20.12. And the woman saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And when Jesus ascended to heaven... Acts 1.10, there were angels in attendance. It says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. Angels reassured them. And Paul possibly had all of these things in his heart and his mind when he writes to Timothy and he has this incredible statement of the incarnation. The incarnation is simply the word of what it means for Christ to be incarnated as a man, to come as a man. And in 1 Timothy 3.16, he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed, on the, uh, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Isn't that an amazing summary of the incarnation, Christ with us? And so it seems that the angels had a great, great interest in the ministry of Jesus, his life, his mission. And they weren't only witnesses of the events. They were also, we were also told that they gazed intently. They looked longingly with great interest into what Jesus was doing. There was an ongoing fascination for all of the angels in heaven. And this is what Peter says, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 1.12. Uh, I've quoted this before, but it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing thing. It says, he was re- it was revealed to them that they were now serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
Things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. What does that phrase mean? Well, there's a commentary by a guy called Peter Adam Clark, uh, and he says this on this portion. He says, It means that even the angels are struck with astonishment at the plan of human redemption, and they justly wonder at the incarnation of the infinite object of their adoration. If then these things be objects of deep consideration to the angels of God, how much more should they be to us? In them angels can have no such interest as human beings have. There's incredible power in this little phrase, the incarnation of the infinite object of their adoration. Jesus, the Son of God. The angels exalt him. They worship him for who he is, for what he has done. They, they worshiped him at his birth. They ministered to him in his life. They supported him when he was in anguish. They announced his resurrection, all because he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. All of that because he chose to do that for confused, undeserving, sin-stained race that rebelled against him, all because he chose to express himself in this inexpressible love to all of his creation in a mysterious and wonderful way and pour it out upon his creation that he loved from before eternity began. That's why the angels worship. And I want to put it to you this morning, as we think about Christmas, that the angels know what we so quickly and so easily forget. That Jesus is Lord. That he's ever and always deserving of worship, adoration, and praise. You know, the angels don't need to be redeemed. You know that? Angels are not redeemed creatures. We are redeemed. Not the angels. The angels will never be redeemed. They're not redeemed. We are redeemed creatures. And if they can worship him for his grace that he's poured out on humanity, and they will never experience redemption, how much more us who have experienced the grace of God, who've experienced redemption for ourselves, shouldn't we be worshiping with all of our hearts? And that's why it says the angels look lovingly on into the plan and purpose of Christ and the gospel. And there's this mixture, there's this marriage of awe and worship and exaltation, which is seen from uh, in the angels and redeemed humanity. And there is, you know, there are some wonderful hymns that uh, we can sing at Christmas time. One of my favorites is this, Hark the Herald, the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king. It's the gospel. Should be celebrating the gospel, <laughs> the good news of Jesus. Amen?